From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China and the World podcast. Delighted today to be with my friend, former office mate in the White House National Security Council, Danny Russell. Uh, Danny uh, was a career foreign service officer until recently, uh, with over thirty years of experience in the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, his last few postings,、uh, most people know, but、uh, for those of you who don't, he served as Assistant Secretary. Of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs from 2013 to 2017. In fact,、um, no one has technically、uh, officially replaced him because、uh, they have not had a confirmed Assistant Secretary of State since then. Prior to that position, he was Special Assistant to the President, Senior Director for Asian Affairs, and the White House National Security Advisor. Prior to that, he was Director for Korea and Japan. Uh, which was the time where we shared an office together, and I got to see this very talented uh, diplomat uh, uh, carry out his work, which was quite impressive.、Um, Danny,、uh, our listeners will remember, was with us about a year ago,、uh, December two thousand seventeen,、uh, when he was serving at the Asia Society as a diplomat in residence. Uh, since then, Danny has retired from the Foreign Service, is still with the Asia Society Policy Institute, but now is Vice President for International Security and Diplom- Diplomacy. Danny, good to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. It's wonderful to be back with you at Carnegie Tsinghua in Beijing. You know, we're. I'm really glad to have you on the program, but I'm glad to be talking to you sort of at the end of your week、uh, in Beijing. Here, you've been meeting with. Government officials and scholars and business leaders, both Chinese and international,、um, and so you know, really want to get a sense from you.、Um, just in general, let me just start out. I mean, where do you see the state of the relationship? We have had the vice president's speech not long ago, and you know, here in China, of course, the people people heard that, people read that. And have come away with some conclusions. Many that we're sort of entering a new Cold War period,、uh, that the U.S. is out to block China's rise, which is something that, frankly, we heard、uh, when you were serving in the Obama administration. And the Obama administration launched its rebalancing effort. So, what's going on in your view? Where are we? Well,、uh, my sense, Paul, is that there's、uh, something of a perfect storm. Uh, affecting the U.S.-China relationship,、um, there have been、uh, significant pressures and and real discontent、uh, building, perhaps on both sides, but、mm. certainly、uh, within the United States for some time. And it feels that just as those pressures, tensions, and frustrations were cresting,、mm. uh, the Trump administration arrived.、Uh, President Trump has a very different style. He's got. Some core beliefs with respect to American national interest and American economic interests, and the combination of a widespread sense in the United States and elsewhere in the West that there's just something unfair here.、Mm. That the way that China operates、uh, in the world,、uh, in trade, in、mm. technology, and other areas. Has been an opportunistic exploitation、mm. of the international system 
uh, and that when it comes to following the rules or making compromises or adjusting, uh, respecting the rights and interests mm. of other parties, China talks a good game, but its actions don't really live up to that. So it's interesting. You're saying, you know, last week, uh, former Secretary of State Condi Rice was interviewed by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And, uh, you know, Steve Orleans interviewed her and said, you know, Trump is saying that Obama administration, Bush administration officials, and even before that, were naive about China, got China wrong, you know, missed an opportunity to address real challenges, um, and asked, you know, Secretary of State Rice, you know, former secretary, is he talking about you? What's going on here? And she said, well, you know, I mean, every administration comes in with the view that previous administrations didn't get it right, and they've got all the answers. And there's some of that here, obviously, with Trump. But what she said, which was interesting, was that many of the challenges that we're working on trying to resolve with China are the same set of challenges that we were working on with the Bush administration. And it sounds like you're saying something similar. What, what are those issues? What, what are the, where do we need some recalibrating? And where is it that China should sort of step forward? And instead of sort of saying it's all about containment, you know, recognize that they have a role uh, in terms of the policies that they're pursuing or the reforms that they haven't pursued. I mean, where do you see the, the important issues that need to be recalibrated? Well, there are important issues, but there are, I think, also important uh, processes. Mm. And the dynamic in which it's uh, the United States that's pointing a finger and telling China, do this, do that, stop this, stop that, is a process that's destined to failure. Mm. Um, let's face it, uh, in human relations and in international relations, there's a real cultural dimension. Now, yeah. that's not an alibi that says, oh, the Chinese culture is thus and such, and therefore you can't expect them to comply with uh, international norms. You can't expect them to respect uh, universal standards because they're really Western and China's uh, got a 5,000-year-long culture that isn't compatible with that. I don't mean it as an alibi. My first boss in the Foreign Service was the former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield, who sure. was ambassador to Japan. And I had the honor of working for him for uh, four years, uh, at the beginning of my career, the first two as his assistant. Legendary figure. And yeah, and, uh, and a wonderful... A uh, human being who really uh, has inspired me through my career in public service. The uh, in in the long list of uh, wonderful sayings yeah. of Mike Mansfield, I'd put near or at the top of the list uh, something I heard him say again and again, which is, "Always listen to the other guy. You never know. Maybe he's right." Now, that doesn't mean that we have to take uh, China's alibis uh, at face value, but it does mean that uh, we need to listen to what uh, the Chinese are saying in terms of their objectives and their goals and their problems. It equally means that the Chinese have got to listen to us. Mm -hmm. So look, any of us can come up with a, a target list mm -hmm. of problem areas the uh, compromise of intellectual property by mm -hmm. Chinese uh, entities, SOEs, and government, mm -hmm. the use of cyber techniques to uh, obtain 
uh, corporate privileged information, exfiltrate it, share it with Chinese companies, and then marketize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, constriction of uh, freedom of maneuver mm. on the part of foreign uh, NGOs or organizations, restrictions on international journalists, uh, and the uh, prejudicial and discriminatory treatment of foreign companies, uh, the threat of forced uh, technology transfer, the pressure on Chinese students in the United States to uh, comply with the party line and uh, efforts to suppress uh, open speech and dialogue, which are hallmarks of of American society and uh, considered by us a universal value. There's a long, long list. Mm -hmm. But my own experience, Paul, as a diplomat, convinces me that the finger-in-the-chest approach isn't Mm -hmm. going to work. The problem is that the uh, persuasive dialogue, the reasonable uh, discussion, the coaxing, the advice from a friend, Mm -hmm. that hasn't worked either. Mm -hmm. And so when uh, people... Uh, and uh, former colleagues of mine in the Trump administration say, well, you guys in the Obama administration and in the uh, administrations before that tried this and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to dispute that fact. When they say, as the vice president did, here is a long list of grievances. These are real problems. Um, there's pr- practically no one in the United States or more broadly in in Western countries that would dispute those concerns and complaints on uh, factual grounds. In fact, many of them share those concerns. Absolutely. And I think that's something that the Chinese side needs to be very attentive to. They need to listen Mm. to that through what is perhaps the static of Twitter and the static of uh, some chest-pounding noises uh, from within uh, Washington, D.C. But the, the question then that uh, we're faced with and the Trump administration is faced with is, well, if that didn't work, then what? Now, I'm not a objective voice on the issue of diplomacy but, and negotiations. But you've acknowledged that the Obama administration had difficulty using the framework that it did to get the Chinese to address these challenges. So, you know, and I will admit in the Bush administration, you know, and I I served for four and a half years there, we also did not make enough progress on these issues. Mm -hmm. So Trump administration's using uh, an approach, which I hear you saying is not going to get them from A to Z. Uh, We did not address those issues. So how do we do that? Um, I think that... Uh, just as a matter of common sense, uh, the answer is going to lie in getting the balance right. And in this case, the balance between leverage and Mm -hmm. pressure on the one hand and uh, negotiation and diplomacy on the other. Uh, So this pendulum has swung very far in the direction of confrontation and pressure and leverage. Uh, But in my view... Uh, negotiations and diplomacy are a little bit like what uh, the the definition uh, of democracy as the least worst uh, of all the political mm. systems, mm. as Winston Churchill said. Right. 
Um, I don't think that a country as uh, large and wealthy and powerful and proud uh, and in some ways um, uh, fragile or mm. brittle in its political system as China is, is going to yield uh, to pure pressure in the way that uh, some in Washington envisage. Mm. Yes, pressure, friction, mm. uh, and leverage is a critical component. Yeah. It's the old two-by-four. Right. But now we've gotten China's attention. Right. What are we going to do? How are we going to paint a pathway yeah. for uh, resolution? Yeah. I think, Paul, that... Uh, the pressure that has built over time has led to uh, a shifting of the tectonic plates a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and we're in earthquake mm -hmm. territory. Mm -hmm. The question that lies ahead of us is whether uh, when the plates and the dust settles, we are on some kind of uh, constructive path to at a minimum, strategic coexistence, mm -hmm. if not strategic cooperation, yeah. or if we're on a path to strategic confrontation and strategic rivalry. Yeah. And the fact is that in human relations or in international relations, cooperation brings out the best in both mm. parties. Mm. Rivalry brings out the worst in mm. both parties, and we have to find a yeah. way to avoid that. Well, I think, you know, you're right. The pendulum has swung. Uh, the Trump administration seems to be using, you know, this, this obviously, you know, pushing hard on China, putting pressure on China, um, confronting China on a range, as Vice President Pence laid out, of issues um, and where China is increasingly undermining U.S. interests, but also the interests of the international community. Um, they have avoided um, this building cooperation with China, in fact, I think, in some ways to give them more leverage. You know, some Trump, former Trump officials and current Trump officials tell me that, you know, we actually disadvantaged ourselves in the Bush and Obama administration because we cared about building cooperation on areas of common interest. And that led us to pulling punches in areas where we needed to be tougher on China. But, um, you know, clearly we need to make progress on these issues. We have disagreements. But we also have to consider, as you say, the long-term relationship. I have a beautiful daughter, one years old, by the mm -hmm. name of Mabel. Yeah. And I, you know, what is the U.S.-China relationship going to look like when she's 25 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old? We've got to keep that in mind as well. Um, as you look out, Danny, I mean, how do you see this? You know, we hear in, in, in China and others in the United States saying that we're moving towards a, a Cold War, and that seems somewhat convenient. It almost sort of, I think, minimizes or simplifies to, to too, too great a, a degree what's happening here. But you mentioned long-term structural strategic rivalry. How much does that concern you as you look out 25, 30, 40 years from now? It concerns me a great deal. And uh, maybe counterintuitively, I'm a lot less worried about a military uh, confrontation or crisis uh, between the U.S. and China. Although, as you know, 
veteran of the EP3 incident and the impeccable incident, and given the recent uh, near miss yeah. in the South China Sea, I've that got a healthy right, got a healthy appreciation of how quickly that can go from a, a military uh, standoff and to a political crisis. And imagine an EP3 incident in today's environment. Right. You know, we were able to work through that back in 2001, 17 right. years ago. Right. Be quite different today. So I'm not uh, denigrating the risk in that kind of uh, episode, and it behooves uh, both sides, and particularly, uh, frankly, the Chinese side, to exercise great caution. But my own experience working with uh, military uh, men and women, uh, yourself included, uh, has uh, convinced me that uh, not only the U.S. military, but I think increasingly uh, the PLA, uh, is very professional and is dedicated to the mission not of fighting a war but of preventing a preventing, war. Sure. So that part of the that, that component of our societies is a professional and a responsible one. I'm not saying something can't go wrong, but the, to me the the bigger risk is that the mindset of antagonism, this uh, sense of adversarial rivalry, uh, the negative stereotype and uh, the conviction that the other guy is up to no good, uh, that this uh, mindset uh, begins to harden. Mm. And we can uh, find a generation in China, a generation in the United States, uh, moving into the decisive positions of uh, power and policymaking with a fundamentally hostile uh, view mm. of the other side. It's hard to break out of that. Uh, societies drive uh, politics and policies in many respects, and both the Bush and the Obama and the Clinton administrations, and frankly, famously, the Nixon administration, yeah. worked mm. uh, to try to build public support for a cooperative uh, bilateral relationship. You know, we, in the Obama administration, you know, some of the key areas where greater cooperation was achieved, the climate change agreement, um, you know, you had cooperation over the Iran nuclear issue. Unfortunately, those are two areas, you know, the Trump administration has pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. The Trump administration has pulled out of the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with, with Iran. Mm -hmm. Um but you talked this week about other areas where the U.S. and China should be cooperating on. You mentioned pandemic diseases, for example. Um, you know, at some point, if the Trump administration is able to begin to address some of these areas in the economic and trade space and other space and begin to make progress, and they get back to the point where maybe the pendulum swings a little bit back and they want to bring in some cooperative efforts to get the balance uh, a little more uh, even what I mean how what are some of the areas that you see and why for example pandemic diseases I mean where do you how important is that for the US and China well the basic logic uh, of the 21st century is that uh, the challenges that face the world are increasingly uh, challenges that don't respect national borders uh, these are these are global uh, threats of climate change, of pandemics, of uh, r violent extremism, ideologies, um, 
of uh, global trade, of infrastructure, connectivity, of uh, access to water, education, uh, changing weather patterns, and so on. In other words, problems that can't be solved by uh, a concert of individual national programs mm -hmm. is a requirement for collaboration. And given that uh, the United States and China uh, rank number one and number two on so many relevant indices, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of common sense that the solutions to problems or the ability to, to manage uh, them and to forestall some of the negative consequences is going to be vastly enhanced by cooperation uh, between number one and number two and undermined by uh, competition or rivalry between mm. number one and two. So that's just the basic logic. Um, I think that there's a, uh, a difference in a fundamental mindset uh, between the current U.S. administration and its predecessors, certainly speaking for the Obama team, uh, our theory of the case mm. was that uh, competition and cooperation in the U.S.-China relationship can easily coexist mm. and that we can differentiate between uh, the areas where we each see it in our respective interests to pool our resources and to try to tackle uh, some issue, a global issue such as the threat from Iran or the threat from North Korea or uh, environment, as you said, or Ebola in West Africa. Uh, thinking ahead strictly on the basis of national interest, uh, if China isn't helping to strengthen the infrastructure of public health in Africa and in Asia, then if the next version of SARS were to mm. erupt uh, it's not going to stop at Beijing Airport. <laughs> it's going to be in Los Angeles sure. and New York and Chicago yeah. uh, overnight. And yeah. so it's in our interest to cooperate. It's not just altruism. It's not uh, kumbaya. Yeah. So the, the theory of the case uh, for us in the Obama administration was uh, let's not conflate or link uh, the problem areas with the uh, areas where uh, it's in our interest to cooperate. Yeah. Uh, let's deal with each on its own merits. Yeah. So on the problem areas, uh, we looked, uh, is there a prospect and a pathway to resolving this problem? If not, is there a way that we can narrow the gaps and reduce the friction? And if not, if these are irreconcilable differences, well, let's develop uh, some mechanism for managing them mm. so that they don't preclude our ability to cooperate in areas in space where it's actually in our interest to yeah. do so. The idea being that there are many strands to yeah. the U.S.-China relationship, but ultimately, if we're smart and if the other side uh, engages in goodwill, these can converge. Yeah. What I'm seeing in the current administration's thinking is, and what they say to me privately, very straightforwardly, is uh, we're applying linkage. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, the the uh, well, certainly the, a, a total st strategy, a whole of government strategy, a, a whole of world strategy, um, and as President Trump has at times said, uh, well, if I'm if China's going to do this, 
in that area, economics. Well, I'm going to do that in a different area, yeah. geostrategic. So there's there's been a close linkage. Now, as a matter of approach, I don't think that's a good strategy. But I certainly understand the logic that holds. Uh, we need to try something different. We need yeah. to try harder. Um, we're beyond frustrated uh, with the processes that the Chinese are comfortable with and have embraced that simply haven't really generated uh, sufficient results. What I hear from my colleagues in the current administration is that China uses uh, dialogue the way Muhammad Ali used rope-a-dope. rope-a-dope. Sure, yeah. It's just wear the other guy out, mm-hmm. run down the clock, the bell will ring, uh, you start the next round and rinse and repeat. Uh, I'll say f- uh, from my own experience that as a veteran of approximately uh, 12 lifetimes in uh, airless conference rooms negotiating with my <laughs> Chinese diplomatic partners, um, I often felt that uh, for them, uh, dialogue meant simply reciting the party line. Uh, and there's a big difference mm. between defending your position uh, and exploring a pathway towards Resolving compromise issues, yeah. and, and resolution. So if the current administration in Washington sees cooperation and collaboration with China as a kind of spider web, it's this sticky uh, form of engagement that makes it harder for the United States to actually make progress. Mm-hmm. Which I think there is a lot of thinking Yeah, like so that. I agree. And, and so that perhaps explains the allergy they've shown, at least so far, to engaging in the sort of mechanisms of cooperation that uh, are traditional in the relationship and that the Chinese side is so comfortable with. Remember the first comprehensive economic dialogue at right. Mar-a-Lago and the 100-day plan. plan. And right. We've generated uh, 112 outcomes. Mm. Well, what's an outcome? <laughs> and oh, by the way, I was with a CEO recently who was on that list of outcomes and still does not have what he was promised at, the, at that 100-day outcome. So that's another, uh, I think, complaint the Trump administration, even if the Chinese side had agreed to things, often didn't follow through. So key to this then, based on your description, is figuring out a way to address these challenges. And central to the challenges is what the Trump administration is putting forward on the economic and trade relationship. And frankly, this is not unique to Donald Trump, as you know. If Hillary Clinton were president today, those issues would be front and center as well. Um, and I tried to get Governor Jeb Bush elected, and he would have been concerned about these issues as well. But so let's think about those issues and how, you know, what what can the Trump administration and the Chinese side do to get some progress? Because it seems so key to everything. Mm-hmm. Now, the Trump, Trump President Trump himself talks a lot about trade deficits, and he and the administration are using tariffs. Um, as their tool 
to inflict pain on the Chinese. Um, the Chinese have come to the conclusion that, well, this is really just about containment. Um, it seems con a convenient narrative to me because, as you've described, there are actually real issues, structural issues in the U.S.-China relationship that need to be recalibrated. Um, how do the two sides make progress? Because they've not been able to do it. And President Trump just continues to add, you know, $50 billion at first in tariffs, $200 billion. Um, he's threatening to go on that $200 billion from 10% to 25% by January 1st. And he said he's willing to go all the way with $200 billion plus more. Um, that's obviously not going to get us where we need to get to. So you've got a lot of experience working on China and the U.S. government. How did the two sides actually get to where they should need mm -hmm. to get to on this? Mm -hmm. Well, Paul, I think that uh, in order to answer that question, uh, either in theory or in practice, uh, first you have to decide what your vision is of what there is. Where are we trying yeah. to go? Uh, what would success look like? Where is the landing zone? Because you can debate uh, the relative merits of different strategies and processes for getting there, but if you're unclear, divided, or ambiguous about where there is, some uh, you're destined... Some you're, contend people in the Trump administration don't actually want to make progress on these issues or find an outcome. There's certain, that I certainly hear a lot from uh, the Chinese side. And uh, on the one hand, uh, there can be an element of alibi to that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's an important clue for policymakers in Washington. If the other side doesn't understand what your definition of success is, what you will consider to be a good outcome, uh, then they're less able and less likely to help you get there. And I think the Chinese can be forgiven for a certain degree of confusion. Mm. After all, um, the whole world is trying to adjust to a very unconventional Twitter-based style, a very personalized uh, leadership style by the current president of the United States. But that can't be an excuse. I do think that it strengthens the point that uh, treating this as a blood sport, an adversarial effort to gain advantage and to punish the other guy, means that rather than listening and looking for a way forward, both sides are more likely to be looking to undercut uh, the other one, and that's not likely to help us find a solution. The, you know, the Chinese often say, is the United States trying to change our behavior? Or is the United States trying to change our system? Yeah. And I'd go back to my original point, which is job number one is visualizing success, is visualizing what a, an acceptable landing spot would be. So if for the United States, uh, the goal is a, uh, a world in which uh, China is competing on terms that the United States and all other countries consider to be fair, that by and large the same rules that apply to uh, one country apply to other countries, even if it's a big and strong country with a proud, uh, long history and culture. Uh, if the United States can compete and uh, 
win on some cases and come in second on others. If that's success, then the question is, how do you get there? And if you can get there by persuading uh, the Chinese system and leaders to make adjustments in its behavior, so much the better. I suspect that if policymakers in Washington uh, conclude that that's not an open avenue, uh, then they do ask themselves, well, is changing the Chinese system the only way forward? Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that's possible, that's desirable, and it's a very fundamental tenet of, uh, of the U.S. political tradition mm -hmm. that uh, the citizens of each country get to select their own system and, and government. Uh, so I put no uh, credence to these paranoid color revolution conspiracy theories. Uh, the United States under Donald Trump is, you know, not trying to evangelize a particular form of government. But the, the fact of the matter is that as frustration mounts at the inability to alter Chinese behavior, uh, criticism and discontent with China writ large, including its system, will grow. Mm. And that should scare us, Paul, mm. because, you know, one uh, great biblical tenet is hate the sin, not the sinner. Mm. And if American attitudes towards China sour and towards mm. Chinese sours, uh, that's bad. And it frankly affects a uh, host of mm. Chinese Americans. Uh, it affects our willingness to be receptive and tolerant of other cultures, etc. And of course, the reverse is true as attitudes harden in China towards the United States. That's really something that we have to avoid. So, you know, my mantra is um, focus on the behavior. We need to be able to articulate first where it is that we, w we want to wind up, mm. what kind of a world we want to live in, what is the landing zone, ask the Chinese to do the same, and begin with those areas of overlap uh, and look hard at the areas of uh, divergence. Then we turn to the behaviors that we think obstruct that, and then we work on ways to design a, a process and a pathway to narrow the differences and to build on the uh, the common uh, interests. Now, I don't want to sound uh, too romantic or uh, Pollyannish. Um, this is a very partisan moment in the United States, very polarized moment, and this is a very um, political and, frankly, politically intolerant moment in China. But. The U.S.-China relationship is not intrinsically a partisan issue in either country, I believe. Mm. And we need to uh, recognize that, and we need to find uh, a rallying point in both countries for all spectrums of the, all parts of the political spectrum, uh, to rally behind not a strategic rivalry, but to rally behind strategic cooperation uh, or at least coexistence. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, in a, in addressing, it seems to me one of the things you're saying is that you know the Trump administration likes to say, when asked, what is that vision? What do you want the Chinese to do? Where do you want this? What's the there? Where are we trying to get to? One of the responses we hear is that the Chinese know what we want them to do. There's a reluctance to be specific because of some of the worries about their negotiating style and the way they negotiate, getting trapped by the Chinese. But that's not sufficient, the Chinese know. I mean, in many ways they probably do because many of these concerns that we've been talking about, whether it's market access or intellectual property or their, or their industrial policies that disadvantage international companies, are not only concerns put forward by the United States, but they're concerns put forward by Europe and Asia as well. And so the Chinese should have a sense of what the issues are, that in term, sort of what the contents are in terms of where we need to get to. But as you suggest, I think you're right in that it is about, about fairness in competition. You know, it was President Bush, when he was a candidate, that said, we don't have a strategic partnership with China. We have a strategic, we're strategic competitors with China. It was also President Bush that embarked on some serious cooperative efforts with China. So, you know, I agree with you. Uh, you can have a competitive aspect of the relationship and you can also cooperate. Um, but you, I think the administration, it seems to me, through all the noise, is saying, we, we are willing to compete with a China that's getting more powerful, that is a significant actor in the global economic system. But we want to do it, want to be able to do it fairly. Because if not, that's going to be detrimental to the United States, other countries, and the international system. One former U.S. trade, uh, USTR official said to me, you know, China has put itself forward as a champion of the global economic and trading system. But the truth is, if every country operated its economy like China does, the global economic and trading system would implode. <laughs> so that's not fair. And I think ultimately, in terms of the vision of where we need to get to, it is a leveling of the playing field. And I think the Chinese leadership would um, be smart to begin to think about the policies that it has that distort competition uh, in the global economic trading system. I'm respectful of your time. I know you've got other things here in Beijing, but I do want to talk a little bit about the G20 that's coming up in the context of all that we've discussed, because many Chinese experts and government officials and friends here are saying, you know, I really hope that the two leaders can come together and we can resolve these issues at the G20. Seems like a pretty big task for two presidents to take on. And I worry we're having some very high expectation for what can be achieved. Um, how do you see the G20? How can the two leaders use it? And do you agree with me? This is, uh, expectations are a little bit high here. Absolutely. And as uh, I'm sure you experienced in government, uh, there is a strong temptation always to see the next meeting right. as the turning point, as right. the decisive one. And I learned long ago, uh, you can't wait around for the next meeting to somehow solve your problems. Yeah. Uh, you've got to lay the groundwork and you've got to 
utilize as best you can every opportunity. The second point is that being the, the victim or veteran of so many of these uh, presidential summits on the margins of multilateral meetings. Yeah, it's not just a meeting between the two presidents. There's a lot of other things going on there. Right. And, you know, in contrast to, say, the uh, Sunnyland summit that mm-hmm. we set up between Obama and Xi Jinping early in Xi Jinping's tenure or the Mar-a-Lago meeting, etc., uh, meeting on the margins of these multilateral uh, affairs means that there's tremendous time pressure. Everybody's exhausted. Uh, it's like a, a dentist office of bilats, uh, one in, one out. Mm. And maybe they'll have 60 minutes. Maybe they'll have 70 minutes. The press is swarming. It's very difficult to use those meetings to really dig down uh, leader to leader and mm begin a process of problem solving. Typically, when a meeting between leaders uh, generates a significant resolution of meaningful problems, it's because all of the work has already been done and the two leaders are uh, finalizing the terms and rolling it out. Clearly, that work has not been done in the US-China economic space. Instead, what we've seen is uh, an effort to soften up the Chinese side and uh, by the U.S. Trade Representative and others, and an effort to uh, lower the ambition and expectations of the U.S. side uh, from China. Paul, I think the most you could really hope for at uh, the G20 summit in Buenos Aires on November 30th is that the two leaders would reach a, a political a decision that they would start a process. Uh, the United States has got to authoritatively and convincingly designate someone to speak for President Trump. The Chinese complain with a certain amount of justice that they've been hearing different things from mm-hmm. different parts of the administration, that they've reached agreement at one mm-hmm. level only to have it uh, overturned. overturned. Um, and I think they have to set some parameters for what this process would have to uh, tackle and by when the two sides would have to report out. It cannot be an open-ended thing. So a roadmap of sorts. Yeah. Uh, And even if it's fairly modest and fairly general, uh, I think that could constitute a uh, turning point. The big questions are whether the Trump administration, whether President Trump feels like uh, the time has come when China would engage in this in a serious way, or whether we're still in spiderweb territory, uh, and whether Xi Jinping and the Chinese side uh, feels that it it can afford uh, to show some compromise. It can't afford to show more of its mm. bottom line mm. because, of course, uh, the Chinese don't want to have the U.S. simply pocket more concessions and then turn around and say, oh, but no, wait, as we said, uh, we've got human rights concerns, we've got industrial policy concerns, we've got IP concerns, and all these concessions that you've made are only the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so. Frankly, uh, it will not. It would not be easy even to get 
uh, process started, but I think that's the the high end of what you could hope for. So, Paul, I think part of it is, you know, the United States has been playing offense. Mm -hmm. The Chinese side has been playing defense. But is this really a football game? Or is it more like a... I don't know, a global barn raising where we've got to bring something there. We've got to try to build something and leave something behind in the expectation that uh, contributions that we make are going to be reciprocated by contributions that uh, China makes. You know, competition is, a, is not a bad thing, but there are two uh, basic uh, forms of competition. One is competition in which we are trying to up our game and outcompete the mm -hmm. other side. Uh, the other form of competition is when we're trying to kneecap the other guy, tie his shoes together, you know, hide his helmet, deflate his football. Right. Um, but the precondition for the constructive, healthy kind of competition that, as I said before, brings out the both best in both sides is that the rules are clear and that the rules are observed. Uh, we each have to believe that uh, the other side is playing fair and right now uh, we just don't have that belief. Mm. Well Danny, thank you very much for your comments and your perspectives. Um, and for spending time with the Carnegie Tsinghua Center this week. Uh, we did not get to talk about North Korea, <laughs> but I would like to do another podcast with you, either while you're here uh, on a future trip or over a phone call, um, because that's uh, an, a really important issue and one in which you have an extensive amount of experience. Um, you know, I worked on the six-party talks in the Bush administration, and gladly handed that responsibility to you when you walked in the door uh, under President Obama. And uh, so would like to talk to you about that at some point. But you've put some very important ideas forward today and uh, really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. And I, I very much look forward to a uh, discussion about North Korea as well. Absolutely. Thanks. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.